Chapter Twenty Four A of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Twenty Four A Trials of the Administration in eighteen sixty three, Hostility to War Measures, Lack of Confidence at the North, Opposition in Congress, How Lincoln Felt About the Fire in the Rear, Criticisms from Various Quarters. Visit of the Boston Set, The Government on a Tightrope, The Enlistment of Colored Troops, Interview between Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, Reverses in the Field, Changes in Military Leaders. It is impossible, without a close study of the inner history of the war and of the acts of the administration, to conceive of the harassing and baffling difficulties which beset President Lincoln's course in every direction and of the jealous, narrow, and bitter opposition which his most important measures provoked. As the struggle advanced, he found in his front a solid and defiant South, behind him a divided and distrustful North. What might be called the party of action and of extreme measures developed a sharp hostility to the President. He would not go fast enough to suit them. They thought him disposed to compromise. They began by criticizing his policy and his methods of prosecuting the war. From this they passed rapidly to a criticism of the President himself. In the affectionate admiration felt for him now, people have forgotten how weak and poor and craven they found him then. So far had his disapproval and hostility gone, that early in 1863 we find Mr. Greeley searching everywhere for a fitting successor to Lincoln for the presidency at the next term. There were but few men in high official station in Washington who at that time unqualifiedly sustained him. In the House of Representatives there were but two members who could make themselves heard who stood actively by him. This matter, long since forgotten, must be recalled to show clearly the President's straits, and his action and bearing amidst his difficulties. It should be remembered that party lines which disappeared at the beginning of the war were again clearly drawn and the democratic wing of congress under the leadership of vallandigham of ohio actively opposed many of the necessary measures for the prosecution of the war the cry had already been raised in congress the south cannot be subjugated and every fresh disaster to the national arms was hailed as proof of the assertion the effect of this abuse and opposition was exceedingly painful to lincoln he said I have been caused more anxiety, I have passed more sleepless nights, on account of the temper and attitude of the Democratic Party in the North regarding the suppression of the rebellion than by the rebels in the South. I have always had faith that our armies would ultimately and completely triumph, but these enemies in the North cause me a great deal of anxiety and apprehension. Can it be that there are opposing opinions in the North as to the necessity of putting down this rebellion? How can men hesitate a moment as to the duty of the government to restore its authority in every part of the country? It is incomprehensible to me that men living in their quiet homes, under the protection of laws, in possession of their property, can sympathize with and give aid and comfort to those who are doing their utmost to overthrow that government, which makes life and everything they possess valuable. 
In January 1863, a party of distinguished gentlemen from Boston visited the national capital, in order to confer with the President on the workings of the emancipation policy. They made the visit chiefly at the suggestion of Ralph Waldo Emerson, who during all the trying years of the war never lost faith in Lincoln's honesty and sense of justice. Secretary Stanton made no secret of his opposition to these gentlemen, who were spoken of rather slightingly as that Boston set. The Boston set were uncompromising abolitionists, and nothing would satisfy them but immediate and aggressive measures for enforcing the policy of emancipation. As it was the President's instinct to feel his way slowly in pushing on the great measures necessary to the safe guidance of the nation in its perilous crisis, they were naturally dissatisfied with his conservative methods and tendencies. The visitors, including Senator Wilson, Wendell Phillips, Francis W. Byrd, Eliza Wright, J. H. Stevenson, George L. Stearns, Oakes Ames, and Moncure D. Conway, called on the President one Sunday evening at the White House. The President met us, says Mr. Conway, laughing like a boy, saying that in the morning one of his children had come to inform him that the cat had kittens, and now another had just announced that the dog had puppies, and the White House was in a decidedly sensational state. Some of our party looked a little glum at this hilarity, but it was pathetic to see the change in the President's face when he presently resumed his burden of care. We were introduced by Senator Wilson, who began to speak of us severally, when Mr. Lincoln said he knew perfectly who we were, and requested us to be seated. Nothing could be more gracious than his manner or more simple. The conversation was introduced by Wendell Phillips, who, with all his courtesy, expressed our gratitude and joy at the proclamation of emancipation, and asked how it seemed to be working. The President said that he had not expected much from it at first, and consequently had not been disappointed. He had hoped, and still hoped, that something would come of it after a while. Phillips then alluded to the deadly hostility which the proclamation had naturally excited in pro-slavery quarters, and gently hinted that the northern people, now generally anti-slavery, were not satisfied that it was being honestly carried out by all of the nation's agents and generals in the South. "'My own impression, Mr. Phillips,' said the President, "'is that the masses of the country generally are dissatisfied chiefly at our lack of military successes. Defeat and failure in the field make everything seem wrong.' His face was now clouded, and his next words were somewhat bitter. "'Most of us here present,' he said, "'have been nearly all our lives working in minorities, and many have got into a habit of being dissatisfied.' Several of those present having deprecated this, the President said, "'At any rate, it has been very rare that an opportunity of running this administration has been lost.' To this Mr. Phillips answered in his sweetest voice, if we see this administration earnestly working to free the country from slavery and its rebellion, we will show you how we can run it into another four years of power. The President's good humor was restored by this, and he said, Oh, Mr. Phillips, I have ceased to have any personal feeling or expectation in that matter. I do not say I never had any, so abused and borne upon as I have been, on taking our leave we expressed to the President our thanks for his kindly reception, and for his attention to statements of which some were naturally not welcome. The President bowed graciously at this, 
and, after saying he was happy to have met gentlemen known to him by distinguished services, if not personally, and glad to listen to their views, added, I must bear this load which the country has entrusted to me as well as I can, and to do the best I can with it. To another self-constituted delegation, this time from the West, who called at the White House one day, excited and troubled about some of the commissions or omissions of the administration, the President, after hearing them patiently, replied, "'Gentlemen, suppose all the property you were worth was in gold, and you would put it in the hands of Blondin to carry across the Niagara River on a rope. Would you shake the cable, or keep shouting out to him, Blondin, stand up a little straighter, Blondin, stoop a little more, go a little faster, lean a little more to the north, lean a little more to the south? No. You would hold your breath as well as your tongue, and keep your hands off until he was safe over.' The government is carrying an immense weight. Untold treasures are in their hands. They are doing the very best they can. Don't badger them. Keep silence, and we'll get you safe across. In 1863 the government, following logically the policy of the Emancipation Act, began the experiment of introducing colored soldiers into our armies. This caused not only intense anger at the South, but much doubt and dissatisfaction at the North. To discuss some of the practical and difficult questions growing out of this measure, Frederick Douglass, the most distinguished representative of the race which America had so long held in chains, was presented to the President. The account of the conference given by Douglass is singularly interesting. He says, I was never more quickly or more completely put at ease in the presence of a great man than in that of Abraham Lincoln. He was seated when I entered in a low armchair with his feet extended on the floor, surrounded by a large number of documents, and several busy secretaries. The room bore the marks of business, and the persons in it, the President included, appeared to be much overworked and tired. Long lines of care were already deeply written on Mr. Lincoln's brow, and his strong face, full of earnestness, lighted up as soon as my name was mentioned. As I approached and was introduced to him, he arose and extended his hand and bade me welcome. I at once felt myself in the presence of an honest man, one whom I could love, honor, and trust, without reserve or doubt. Proceeding to tell him who I was and what I was doing, he promptly but kindly stopped me, saying, "'I know who you are, Mr. Douglas. Mr. Seward has told me all about you. Sit down. I am glad to see you.' I urged, among other things, the necessity of granting the colored soldiers equal pay and promotion with white soldiers and retaliation for colored prisoners killed by the enemy. Mr. Lincoln admitted the justice of my demand for equal pay and promotion of colored soldiers, but on the matter of retaliation he differed from me entirely. I shall never forget the benignant expression of his face, the tearful look of his eye, and the quiver in his voice when he deprecated a resort to retaliatory measures. Once begun, said he, I do not know where such a measure would stop. He said he could not take men out and kill them in cold blood for what was done by others. If he could get hold of the persons who were guilty of killing the colored prisoners in cold blood, the case would be different, but he could not kill the innocent for the guilty. Afterwards we discussed the means most desirable to be employed outside the army to induce the slaves in the rebel states to come within the federal lines. The increasing opposition to the war in the North and the mad cry against it because it was being made an abolition war, alarmed Mr. Lincoln, and made him apprehensive 
that a peace might be forced upon him which would leave still in slavery all who had not come within our lines. What he wanted was to make his proclamation as effective as possible in the event of such a peace. He said in a regretful tone, The slaves are not coming into our lines as rapidly and numerously as I had hoped. I replied that the slaveholders knew how to keep such things from their slaves, and probably very few knew of his proclamation. Well, he said, I want you to set about devising some means of making them acquainted with it, and for bringing them into our lines. What he said showed a deeper moral conviction against slavery than I had ever seen before in anything spoken or written by him. I listened with the deepest interest and profoundest satisfaction, and at his suggestion agreed to undertake the organizing of a band of scouts composed of colored men whose business would be, somewhat after the original plan of John Brown, to go into the rebel states beyond the lines of our armies, carry the news of emancipation, and urge the slaves to come within our boundaries. Frederick Douglass once remarked that Lincoln was one of the few white men he had ever passed an hour with who failed to remind him in some way before the interview terminated that he was a negro. He always impressed me as a strong, earnest man, having no time or disposition to trifle grappling with all his might the work he had in hand. The expression of his face was a blending of suffering with patience and fortitude. Men called him homely, and homely he was, but it was manifestly a human homeliness. His eyes had in them the tenderness of motherhood, and his mouth and other features the highest perfection of a genuine manhood. As though the political difficulties that beset President Lincoln in the first half of 1863 were not discouragement enough, they were attended by disheartening reverses to our arms. It will be remembered that on the removal of General McClellan from command of the Army of the Potomac, in November 1862, General Burnside succeeded him. The change proved an unfortunate one. General Burnside was an earnest and gallant soldier, but was not equal to the vast responsibilities of his new position. It is said, to his credit, that he was three times offered the command of the Army of the Potomac and three times he declined. Finally, it was pressed upon him by positive orders, and he could no longer, without insubordination, refuse it. In addressing General Halleck after his appointment, he said, Had I been asked to take it, I should have declined. But being ordered, I cheerfully obey. After his fearful defeat at Fredericksburg, December 13, 1862, he said, The fault was mine. The entire responsibility of failure must rest on my shoulders. By his manly and courageous bearing, and the strong sincerity of his character, he retained the respect and sympathy of the President and of the country. He immediately retired from command of the Army of the Potomac, which, under his brief leadership, had fought the most bloody and disastrous battle in its history. End of chapter 24a Recording by Bill Vorst